Welcome back, listeners. On this episode, I spoke to art director Andres Cubayon about being the Ricardos. We chatted about his past knowledge of Lucille Ball, the crown jewels incorporated into the film, what he hopes audiences take away from the film, and much more. Yeah, I'm in LA right now. Um, I, I start another a new movie in January, so I'm hoping that uh, we, we were supposed to start it in October, so now I'm starting in January. Hopefully it's coming together. <laughs> yeah, what's the name yeah. of the it's called Unfrosted, and it's uh, Jerry Seinfeld's new movie. He's he's writing, directing, and starring in it. Oh wow! Yeah, it's that's a hilarious script. It's a really hilarious script. Oh good. So that's yeah. going to come out in well, I shouldn't be asking you that question, but twenty twenty three probably. You know, he's actually. I, I just I don't see it happening, but they want to try to release it for next December. So we'll see. Hmm. It just it's you know we're not going to wrap shooting until June. So, but you know we did the same thing with the Ricardo. So maybe it'll be maybe it'll be the same deal. Yeah, no, and I I, I really want to congratulate you on the Ricardos. I mean, I I'm still having a very um, contemplative moment every single time I think about the ending. Um, it kind of wrecks me, to be honest. And I go and um, listen to the score um, and that last um, that last piece. And I know now I'm trying to think of what how they titled the two. It's like the start of a dream and the end of a dream, or something like that. And going back and listening to the first part, and then listening back to the second part, it's like. Holy smokes. And so then I get like, not emotional, but just very like overwhelmed with what I was actually watching. And I feel that sort of encapsulates the entire movie in a sense. Like I know what I'm watching, but at the same time, what am I watching? What am I watching unfold? And um, so I just, I really have to say uh, congratulations. And I mean, Bravo oh, thank you for getting it done and in the time that you guys did um i talked to um ellen brill back in he's great uh, many months ago and i think you guys had just wrapped and we were having just a preliminary discussion basically and um and how difficult the conditions were and all of that and so um i just i can't imagine doing anything like that um <laughs> so luckily i get to do everything mostly over zoom so uh, so yeah sorry long long yeah. congratulations on that one no 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 no. thank you i appreciate it I'm, we're i think we're all particularly proud of this one um it's it, it's a rare occurrence when a movie kind of comes together as nicely as this one did you know and and the fact that you know we didn't we didn't have any drama and you know everybody got along and it was just so laid out from the get-go, starting with Aaron's script. So it's just, it's a rare occurrence when we have those kinds of experiences. So we were, we're all, we all treasured it very much. And uh, Ellen is going to be working with me and John in this next movie for, for Jerry Seinfeld. So we're hoping to get the team back together, trying to replicate the magic. We'll see what happens. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't, I, I didn't know that. So that's, that's fantastic to hear. Yeah. 
Um, so I guess just, I mean, going back to the basics of it all, I mean, how did you first hear about the project? Was it, was it through John? Was it through someone else? It was, you know, I, I think I had, I had heard about the project a good while ago, a good couple of years ago. And it, I think it was when Kate Blanchett was attached to Play Lucy. And immediately was one of those like, God, I hope I get on one of the, I hope I get on that movie. Like not only, I've worked with Kate Blanchett before, not only is she just this ethereal sort of floating goddess, but it's just, you know, I Love Lucy. I grew up watching I Love Lucy, you know, with my grandfather and with my dad. And it's something that sort of is, was always playing in my house in one capacity or another. So I just wanted to really work on it. And I was working with John on the West Wing special, which was um, this sort of reunion for the West Wing that we did for When We All Vote last year with Aaron Sorkin, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was our first day of prep and I overheard him on the phone talking about the project. And I was like, oh my God, okay. I think he's designing this movie. And then he kind of tells me about it. He's like, yeah, it's looking like I'm gonna be doing this movie for Aaron Sorkin. And he didn't offer me the job, but just from him saying that, I got home and I quit the job that I was set to start the following month. Cause I was like, if there is even a possibility that I would work on that movie, I, I needed to take it, I needed to take it. So it was a gamble and I'm just very happy that it paid off. But yeah, it was from John. John, you know, I've worked with John several times now and we kind of, you know, we just get along so well and we kind of balance each other out. So it's just, you know, it, it, was, a, it was an easy, easy professional relationship to, to have. I love that. And so you were, I mean, you were familiar with I Love Lucy. Yes, very much so. Got it. Yeah. Um, I found varying degrees of uh, how much someone was involved or how much someone knew about Lucy and sort of the inner workings of that. Um, and so it's been, it's been fascinating to hear someone who has been completely out of the loop of sort of I Love Lucy and hearing being from the UK and just sort of being like, oh, I've, I've heard of, um, I've heard of her, but I don't know anything about her really. And then someone who has some involvement, but now you having a, a great amount of sort of knowledge of her. I mean, was there anything that you learned during this process that, I mean, really stood out to you? I mean, this was a, a very, I mean, for my, I'm not going to say limited knowledge, but my sort of well, I, I actually will say limited knowledge. My limited knowledge of Lucille Ball, I mean, I had no clue um, any of this really happened in her life. So, I mean, what did you know and what, what did you really, what was, the, what was the biggest thing that you took away? Um, I definitely didn't know about her being accused of being a communist, um, which I think kind of takes everybody by surprise. Um, especially because I, I did I did know about her being part of the campaign against the sort of McCarthy trials and all that stuff. So I it was just so surprising to to hear about the communism. Um, and I did as soon as I knew that John had the job and that we were going to do it, I just started doing my own research. And I think it's just because you know I'm 
I'm a bit of a nerd and I just kind of enjoy doing that kind of thing. So I just, I just started doing my own research and being really surprised at how she was the head of her own studio in, in a, in a period when women did not have that kind of a position. Uh, the fact that she was able to, you know, buy Desi out of Desi Lu uh, years after the show wrapped. So it's just that, that kind of a thing I started researching early on and what I really didn't know was how tumultuous her marriage was. The fact that, you know, all these records of infidelity, you know, Desi definitely had a drinking problem. Like it was just, all of, all of that was just so shocking because all you know is this sort of adorable couple and look how happy and how funny they are. Mm -hmm. So um, digging into that and all the, all those little things that Aaron's script just kind of hints at, and just lets it sit there like you know you don't even have to go into depth about it it's such a such a little hint of what was actually going on in their lives was really really surprising mm -hmm. and i mean did you do i mean do you see yourself in i mean lucille or in desi at <laughs> all that is a good question <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, maybe a little bit of both, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of both. Um, I think I definitely have her quest for perfection. Like I will definitely needle, like I'll just like noodle, noodle it, needle it, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll fudge with something as much as possible to try to get it perfect. Um, and then there's also sort of that I, I, I think I have sort of Desi's like risk taking ability or, or I just, you know, as, as, I, as I mentioned for before I even had the job, I needed to take that gamble. And I think it's, you know, our, our industry can be a little safe, but it's also kind of unpredictable and crazy. And I think um, he definitely had that ambition and that drive to be excellent and to be you know, that he wanted to have the biggest studio that would compete with all these other studios of the era. So I think that's kind of where I sort of tie into them um, personally. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it obviously seems like you didn't have really any hesitation towards the project, but I mean, you are taking a, you were taking a gamble in a sense. And I mean, is the gamble in terms of the, the success or the way that they pull off the characters? What was sort of the gamble for you in terms of this project? Well, I think that the gamble was really that whether the project would happen at all. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely not a gamble when you're working with John. It's not a gamble when you're working with an Aaron Sorkin script. Like you just, you know, it's good. You know, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's good. I. You know, I've been a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin since The West Wing, and it's just this such a phenomenal writer with such an incredibly detailed script. It's all there. It's all there. So knowing that it's John, knowing that it's Aaron Sorkin, knowing that it was I Love Lucy, I was, it was such a no-brainer. Um, I think when I say gamble, it was just whether the project was going to happen at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I can understand that. Um, and so can you just describe sort of the, the day-to-days of working in sort of this 
COVID-esque environment with John and with the rest of your crew? I mean, can you sort of go into that? Because I feel like so many people are, I mean, everyone has their own COVID experience in terms of how they work. I mean, I definitely do. Um, but I mean, for you especially, I mean, you're a particularly hands-on job. And so how did that, how did that change everything? Um, a lot of our key team members of the art department were working remotely. So I had, you know, our set designers were working remotely. Excuse me, our graphic designer was working remotely. And to start out, it was only me, John, our art department coordinator and our RPA in the office. Everyone else was sort of not there. Mm -hmm. And speaking of COVID, I, you know, we started, we started prep on January 4th of this year. And the week before, or actually it was, it was December 22nd, I tested positive for COVID. Oh, wow. So it was one of those like, I, and you know, very, very thankfully it was not, it was not aggressive. It was very mild for me, but all of a sudden you have this like fear of, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to work on this movie or I'm not going to be able to start right away. How do I do this? How do I figure it out from afar? Um, so fortunately our first week of prep was done remotely. So I was able to kind of quarantine, but still work through Zoom with everybody. Um, John luckily is a man that comes with a plan. He shows up on the first day and he's got drawings and references and he's got furniture that he knows he wants to use or color, a color palette, a rough color palette that he wants to have. So he's, he's easy that way because he knows what he wants where many designers might not. They'll need that time to kind of figure it out. But again, coming back to COVID on our first day in the office, you know, our, our PA was helping us bring boxes upstairs. You know, we set up John's office, we set up my office. And the next day he says he's not feeling well. And he actually tested positive for COVID. So this young kid in his early twenties had just tested positive. And luckily I was still within my immunity period. So I didn't have to go into quarantine. John, I think he was like, they were like afraid of what his exposure had been. So he decided to work from home for the next two weeks. Our, our department coordinator luckily didn't get it, but she also had to go work from home. So I spent two weeks by myself in the office. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, masks are uncomfortable. And, you know, we have to, as much as we try to stay six feet apart, we have to show each other stuff. We have to look at color samples together. We need to, you know, go over construction drawings together. So it was just a matter of being careful. Um, and luckily the production had a really great sort of health protocol. So, you know, we were getting tested weekly. I think twice a week we were getting tested, temperature checks and all that stuff. It's just, it's an added quote unquote inconvenience because it's really not, but you know, but it is, it's just yeah. time out of schedule. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I kind of would like the inconvenience at times. Um, oh, for sure. Like, you know, because I, I, I you know, I, I finished the project a couple of months ago, another project a couple of months ago, and I'm like, wow, I haven't been tested in, in a really long time. Like, what, how do I know if I don't have it, you know? Uh, well, I hate, I mean, I hate that we're going through this time period and sort of everything that surrounds it. Um, 
but I did, I, I had to ask about it because I know that it was extremely, I mean, trying to get everything that you guys did in that time period is just, it's almost impossible. I mean, I, it, I yeah, I, and it, it, in, in terms of production, it, it just, it adds a lot of additional obstacles, like the amount of people that were allowed on stage at a time, you know, we, we shot, you know, our, our I Love Lucy stage set and sound and soundstage all together in one block. And it was, you know, we were in that soundstage for three weeks and it's a lot of people in there together, closed doors, you know, and as much as we try to filter the air in between takes and like, you know, it's just, it's a lot of obstacles and even the amount of extras that we could have any given day to, so anybody that could, that didn't have to be there for the actual filming needed to step outside. It was, it's definitely added some difficulty. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can't answer this question, but I am curious. I mean, I love, I mean, I guess I'm a sucker for live studio audiences. I mean, I guess that's always just been something. I mean, I don't know why this particular reference is coming to mind, but Roseanne, I mean, I remember watching Roseanne as a kid and just always remember yeah. the, the laughs and sort of the background. Um, but I mean, how did, I mean, with those particular scenes, I mean, were there that many extras on, on the, on the lot and on the stage being like in action or what, was it something different that? Is no, the, there was some visual effect tiling. So I think, you know, the, the bleachers that we built for the, for the set, I think it was something maybe like 200 people could have been sitting at on those bleachers. And I, I can't remember exactly the, the amount of extras that we actually ended up having, having, but I know that, you know, they, they would sort of move the extras to wherever, to wherever the, the, the action around the actors was happening. And then the rest was all a visual effect, uh, visual effects extension. So they would just have, you know, they would have the same people change their clothes slightly, sit in a different spot, and then they would kind of tile them together across the across the bleachers so that it, it would look like a full a full thing. Got it. I, I was just very curious about that. Um, I I don't know, maybe it was just the, the COVID <laughs> alarm going off in me, but I was I was very oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah. How you guys pulled that off. Um, but I mean was there I mean was there a particular segment of the script that I mean drew you in in terms of in terms of your just your part of the project like was there something that you were just so excited to get involved in and you just or couldn't stop researching it or for me it was the i love lucy set mm -hmm. the i love lucy set it's just you know I, I i think it's just it's what's most familiar to to all of us and i we we, we took a little bit of creative liberties with that because the the episode that's actually in the script the ethel and fred fight that's that episode is actually in season one so the ricardos were in a different apartment um and it's that the apartment that has a brick wall it doesn't have a window it's it's a very it's a much simpler apartment mm. and you know in discussions with aaron and then discussions with our dp um it was just a better choice to have the later version apartment that it had a window it, it was just a little bit more dynamic so and a little bit more i think sort of architecturally detailed um so 
I just poured over all the episodes. Like it, it's it's incredibly fun research because I'm just, I'm watching I Love Lucy and I just had my phone set up in front of the TV and just taking photos constantly, every single, you know, close ups and things like that because the entire set was drawn off of stills from the show where we would be able to sort of compare what kind of a molding it was. And we're, we're trying to measure the spacing between panels with, you know, the size of Lucy's head in front of it. Oh, it, this looks like it might be maybe eight or nine inches tall and things like that. Um, so the I Love Lucy set was for me the most exciting part. Um, again, it's just what we're most familiar with and yeah. Yeah, was there, I mean, maybe not the appropriate question for you, but was there anything that you were able to um, capture, I mean, from that time period um, that you were particularly proud of in terms of, I, I don't know, I, I know there was wallpaper that was being used that was from, from that time period. I mean, there were pieces from, I mean, from the set in some instances, but was there something yeah. that you were just like, oh my gosh, this is like the crown jewel of the I Love Lucy set in a, in a sense. Um, I don't know if, if my, the, the crown jewel to me will be the actual crown jewel to everyone, but where we can actually tie it in specifically, I think those are the little details that are sort of most at heart for me. And so, you know, our, our brilliant graphic designer, Jason Swears, like he replicated the wallpaper in the bedroom. And that's such a, it's such a specific wallpaper, you know, with that sort of floral lattice. And seeing that up on the wall um, and, you know, my assistant art director, Sam Rashba and I poured over photos of the bedroom so that we could actually match the furniture because we needed to build it. There was no way that Ellen was going to find that somewhere. So, you know, Ellen had that built, but we had to draw it. We had to figure out what it looked like. And it's, it's not, we never have a scene in the bedroom. You never, you barely see the bedroom in the movie, but for us to see it there and know that we had sort of put that attention to detail was, was fantastic. Um, I think another one was the Tropicana, you know, looking at photos and we had to recreate the bandstands. And as you're, as you're sort of putting the set together, you realize that it's actually not, you know, right, right angled walls there. It's actually askew. And it was, it was a matter of watching 10 different episodes that have musical scenes in the Tropicana. So you could understand the layout how do the musicians fit in here? Because there's actually not a whole lot of room. So for me, seeing those pieces come together and be as accurate as I think we made them was, was a joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know why I haven't even mentioned the Tropicana, but no, I, that, that it is, I don't know, it's such a refreshing sort of throwback that you don't always get to see so often and just to, to be able to bring that to life. I mean, I mean, that's such an important part of, um, I know Javier's sort of story in terms of what he had to do to yeah. prepare for this part. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I, I thought that was beautiful. 
Uh, I'll, men I'll mention something quickly there because he, you know, he he just he embodied Desi and he wanted, you know, he was practicing the congas, he was practicing guitar, he was taking singing lessons. And, you know, the I was working with Trish Gallagher Glenn, who was our prop master, and we were trying to figure out because she had to have the congas made. That's not a drum that's made anymore. So she had to have it specially made for the show, and she had two made. One that would be shipped to Javier so that he could practice, and then the other one for the actual shoot. But even the stripes around the conga and looking at videos of Desi playing, photos wherever they existed of him with the conga so that we could actually tell what's the size of this thing? What are the size of the stripes? You know, how much of, of the hide is seen at the top? And how do we then translate those dimensions on Desi to Javier, who is considerably taller than Desi was. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are the kinds of details that I end up sort of pouring over and geeking out on that no one will ever sort of pay any attention to, but for me are like, are the most fun part. Yeah. And I mean, is there a performance for you that, I mean, just sticks out? I mean, there, obviously everyone is a standout, but is there someone, I don't know, I, for me, um, it's uh, Nina's character. I oh mean, my God, a hundred percent. I just, I, every single time I saw her on the screen, I was just like, oh my God, I, yeah. Ethel, Ethel. Oh, I, like, yeah. I, it, it just, it completely hit me. I, I was going to say the exact same thing, you know, as, as, as I think, as, as wonderful as Nicole and Javier were in the movie, because they really were, they were just fantastic. For me, Nina, seeing her in person, I was like, oh my God, it's Vivian Vance. And I, you would see her sort of practicing the Vivian walk between takes and how she would sort of play with the tone of her voice. And you're just like, oh, like she would, she just embodied, embodied Vivian so much. Um, the other one I think would be J.K. Simmons. I mean, he, he's, he's a tall, slender man. And all of a sudden he's in sort of this like, you know, the, the octave of his voice is so much lower and he's in this sort of, you know, outfit with, you know, the high-waisted pants and you're like, oh my God, it's William Frawley. So it's just, see, the two of them for me were were just absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I can, I would have said J.K. Simmons next. Um, I think it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really, I mean, like you said, it, as great as Nicole and Javier were, I mean, it's, it is very hard to take your eyes off of two supporting um, actors that are just so, I mean, so scene stealing and and completely in their own yeah. in their own right. I mean, with J.K., it was I mean more comic relief um, in his instances. Um, yeah, and Nina's was just I don't. She was just in her own. I I feel like the dimension she brought to it. I mean, it it was. Uh, it, hard to sympathize, hard to uh, understand, hard to, um, hard to articulate. I mean, she's just, she's such a complex, I mean, the Ethel character and sort of once you know that, I mean, Ethel and Frank were not close at all. Yeah. And, and yeah. despise each other. I mean, it, it is just, it's so, it's so fascinating to then see those two go back to back and then also see Nicole getting added into that that realm. So I, I don't know. I, I, I am just completely floored by that. 
Yeah, I think, you know, that that's something that also kind of came from sort of my, my early research. I didn't know that they hated each other the way that they did. And I think it, it does change the way that you then see the show. And you, it's a testament to how good of an actor both William Frawley and Vivian Vance were, because you can't tell that they hated each other. In those moments when they make up and they're tender with each other and it's not just sort of this sort of jabbing back and forth, you're like, oh my God, I would never have thought that you guys actually hated each other as soon as they yelled cut. Um, and Nina, you, you just see sort of how wounded she is as an actress and I think as, as this supporting character to Lucille Ball and the fact that she was meant to be the, the frumpy neighbor to this, you know, not that, not that Lucille was ever particularly, you know, she was never the, the glamorous Hollywood star in the mm -hmm. show, except, you know, those instances where, the, you know, she kind of dresses up, but on the day to day, she was never that. But the fact that they still had to make Vivian the frumpy neighbor who, and she was a perfectly gorgeous woman who was a dancer and a brilliant theater actress. So it's just kind of, it's very interesting. And I think Nina just portrayed her beautifully. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm over time, um, but two- no, 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 no rush, you take your time. <laughs> oh, I, okay. I just wanted to, I wanted to respect your time. Um, no worries. Uh, so, I mean, what is your biggest takeaway from this project? I mean, is it just the fact that you were able to work on something like it um, or is it something else? No, I, it, it really was the project as a whole. You know, as, as I mentioned early on, it was such a rare gem of a project because I don't want to say that our, that our jobs in the film industry are particularly hard because they're not sort of in the grand scheme of jobs across the world, we're playing make-believe and we're, we're literally playing with toys and making art. So it's not that our jobs are too hard, but our jobs are too much to then have there be all of this complication and drama and you know, scheduling issues and money issues. And it's something, it's a reality of, I think, anyone's job and certainly a reality of ours. But this project was seriously just had, you know, a scoop of ice cream and a cherry on top. It was just great people. You know, the, the brilliant Jeff Cronenweth just loved the sets and you can see it in the movie. He lit them so beautifully and you can actually see them. And that in and of itself, I'm like, even if, even if the rest of the movie were horrible, the fact that for, for me as an art director, seeing the set and seeing it be appreciated was, was everything. You know, our, our prop master brought a grit that used to work on the I Love Lucy show. He was, he's in his late 80s now. He was like, I think 19 when he was on the show. And he came in to instruct us on how to place the cameras, how to mark them on the floor, which camera would be doing what. And he walked in and he was like, oh my God, it's like being back on the set. And that is the best compliment mm -hmm. that anyone in the art department can, can get. Cause it's, you know, we, 
again, no, the audience in theaters is not going to see every detail that we put into it, but we know. And I think the actors can tell, you know, I think it affects the performance when a set is as detailed and complete as possible. So for me, the show was the, was the real takeaway. It was just a, a, a brilliant experience. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I guess sort of the final question, I mean, like you were mentioning, or like you were saying, I mean, audiences in theaters might not notice this, might not notice that. Um, I mean, it is out in theaters right now, but obviously it's going to go on a much larger platform, Amazon Prime and right around the Christmas um, holiday. And I mean, what do you hope, I mean, whether it's selfishly or for the good of, uh, for the good of the cast and the crew, I mean, what do you hope is the, is the takeaway from this project in particular? I would want people to think, I, I, let me sort of restart there. I, I would want people to watch the movie and not expect I Love Lucy because that's not what the story is. It's not what the story is about. It's about this couple and particularly this woman having the worst week of her life where not only is her TV program in jeopardy, but her actual life, her marriage is in jeopardy, her reputation. It would be, you know, it, it would be sort of the end of her quote unquote life. So I, I, I say that in response to what so many people were criticizing at the beginning of casting Nicole and Javier on a movie like this, because they, they're not the funny, they're not the typical person that you would imagine would be cast as Lucio Ball and as Yarnaz. But this movie is not a comedy, it's a drama. It's a drama right up until the last shot. So I can't imagine anyone better to have played those two characters as beautifully as they did. And believe me, it's something that it took me, even working in the movie, it took me time to sort of come to this realization. So I would want people just to watch it with an open mind and know that we're not, we're not trying to recreate I Love Lucy. Yeah. We are trying to tell the story of these very real people and a story that, you know, many, if not most people don't really know. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think Aaron, Aaron sort of said it best. He, for him, it wasn't an imitation. It was an interpretation. And I think they, you know, N Nicole and Javier did an absolutely beautiful job and I would want people to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I just want them to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all for listening. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jackson Vickery. Graphics were done by Dylan Michael. And the opening and closing theme were done by Sterling Gavinsky.